Welcome back to Run the List, a medical education podcast for medical students and all learners. Our hosts are Dr. Naveen Kumar, Dr. Walker Red, Dr. Emily Gutowski, and Joyce Sow. As a quick disclaimer, this podcast is meant for informational and educational purposes only and should not be understood as medical advice under any circumstances. Welcome to another episode of Run the List. Today, I'm really excited to share with you all a hematology episode on a very important topic, sickle cell disease. We have a guest with us, Dr. Maureen Achebe, who is a hematologist at Brigham and Women's Hospital and the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. She's also the director of the Center for Sickle Cell Disease at Brigham and Women's. She teaches trainees at Harvard Medical School and actually has had our scriptwriter and case presenter, Katie Kester, at her clinic during her internal medicine rotation. Are you guys ready to run the list? All right, Katie, why don't you introduce to us our case today? Yes. So this is a 24-year-old man with known sickle cell disease who presents to the emergency department with pain. The patient states that his episode is identical to his typical pain episodes when he experiences pain in his chest, abdomen, and both of his lateral upper thighs. The pain began yesterday and has not responded to his oral pain medication, dilated four milligrams every four hours as needed. Additional past medical history includes avascular necrosis of both hips, priapism, cholecystectomy, and one prior episode of acute chest syndrome. The patient averages one visit to the emergency department every month, and he is admitted to the hospital approximately 50% of the time. His vitals are temperature 99.6, heart rate 115, blood pressure 140 over 90, and his respiratory rate was 22, oxygen saturation 98% on room air. In general, he appears uncomfortable and acutely in pain. He is tachycardic with a regular rhythm, and he is also known to have a two out of six systolic murmur heard throughout the percordium. Abdomen is soft with diffuse tenderness, and he is tender over both hips and lateral thighs. The rest of his exam was normal. All right. Thank you, Katie. So Dr. Achebe, I thought it might be helpful if we started by briefly reviewing the pathophysiology of sickle cell disease. We know that perhaps many of our listeners have learned about sickle cell genetics a little bit in their preclinical courses. So just briefly, can you remind us about sickle cell genetics as well as what takes place on a cellular level? Oh, I'd be happy to. So sickle hemoglobin is due to a point mutation that causes a single amino acid replacement in the beta globin chain of hemoglobin. So instead of glutamic acid, there's a switch to valine. The valine is able to attach itself to neighboring hemoglobin molecules so that these hemoglobin molecules form a polymer of stacks of hemoglobin. These polymers are stiff and they deform the red cell membrane, leading to a sickle shape of red cells. Things like hypoxia, high altitude, and acidosis precipitate sickling of red blood cells. Sickle cell disease is hereditary and it's autosomal recessive. That's really helpful. Thanks for reviewing the basics. What are some of the major consequences of the sickling of red blood cells? So the major causes of mortality and morbidity in patients with sickle cell disease are the acute and chronic consequences of vasoocclusion, hemolysis, and infection. And I can take these one at a time. So vasoocclusion causes acute pain in patients with sickle cell disease. 
The sickle cells cause vasoclusion that causes ischemic tissue injury. Vasoclusion is thought to happen by multiple pathways. So besides the sickling of red cells, there's also vascular endothelial, platelet, and leukocyte activation. These all depend on there primarily being polymerization of hemoglobin that causes the red cells to sickle. Chronic pain in patients with sickle cell disease is due to damage to bones, visceral organs, and joints, also as a result of vasoocclusion. And vasoocclusion can cause renal damage, leg ulcers, and strokes, as well as avascular necrosis due to ischemia to bone. Hemolysis in sickle cell disease is due to intravascular and extravascular hemolysis in the spleen. The bone marrow tries its best to compensate for the increased red cell destruction, but it can't meet the rate of destruction. A normal red cell survives 120 days, while a sickle cell survives only 10 to 20 days. And then there's an increased risk of infection. Now, splenic function in patients with sickle cell disease is abnormal. The chronic and repeated Vasoclusive episodes ultimately lead to splenic atrophy and reduced immune function. The spleen, you remember, is important for macrophage phagocytosis of encapsulated bacteria. So patients are prone to pathogens like strepneumo, H. influenza B, and Neisseria meningitides. Patients may develop pneumonias, particularly from atypical organisms like chlamydia, mycoplasm, and legionella. And patients may also have osteomyelitis and septic arthritis due to underlying damaged bone. So the osteomyelitis is typically due to staph aureus, salmonella, and other gram-negative organisms. So what I'm hearing is that the complications of sickle cell disease are due to three main buckets. One, that there's vasoocclusion. Two, the hemolysis and anemia. And three, that splenic function is affected that leads to higher risk of infection. So now, Dr. Achebe, let's think back to this patient. So his past medical history included avascular necrosis, priapism, as well as a cholecystectomy. And on exam, he had this notable systolic murmur. Can you describe how these are related to his sickle cell? Almost all patients with sickle cell disease have a systolic murmur due to chronic anemia. So it's a flow murmur. Avascular necrosis in patients is due to vasoocclusion that leads to loss of blood supply to the femoral head. Remember that the femoral head has only one major source of blood supply. Priapism is due to red cells blocking venous outflow and causing an erection that's not purposeful. It is painful and not purposeful. And then gallstones are bilirubin gallstones that are due to excessive bilirubin from the constant breakdown of red cells. Thanks for going over that. Now let's turn to management, perhaps. So Dr. Achebe, what's your approach to the routine management of a patient with sickle cell? So by routine management, what I'm thinking of is the chronic management and health maintenance of patients with sickle cell disease. Hydroxyurea is the drug that we've used for the longest time in patients with sickle cell disease. It increases the production of fetal hemoglobin, which does two things. It decreases the relative concentration of sickle hemoglobin, and it also interrupts hemoglobin S polymerization. And so it affects downstream sickling and vasoocclusion, and it improves these. We give folate 
to assist the bone marrow in making red cells since there's such enormous red cell turnover. And we replace vitamin D and calcium as needed in patients who are deficient. Patients also need to receive age-appropriate vaccinations as well as vaccinations against encapsulated organisms because by the time they're adults, their spleens are not functioning anymore. So we give vaccinations against strep pneumo, H influenza, and meningitides. And now there are two new FDA-approved drugs for sickle cell disease. They were both approved in November 2019. The first is crizanlizumab, also called Adacvio, and it's a P-selectin inhibitor that decreases rate of pain episodes. And the second is Voxelator, also known as Oxbrita. It's a small molecule that increases hemoglobin's affinity for oxygen and in so doing improves anemia. And then let's not forget one drug that was FDA approved in 2017 called L-glutamine that also decreases pain crisis. All right. So what you just described were ways that we can manage a patient with sickle cell disease on a routine basis. But as we know, patients with sickle cell also have acute pain episodes. Dr. Chubby, can you explain how we treat a sickle cell pain episode? So in a patient who has a pain crisis, first and foremost, we try to give prompt administration of analgesia because early management of pain has been shown to decrease length of stay in hospital. So for patients who have previously had a pain episode, we start with a dose and a choice of an opioid that's been used and been successful in the past. And then we also rapidly reassess pain to see that we've gotten pain under control. If pain relief is inadequate with intermittent redosing, then we give the patient a patient-controlled anesthesia pump, which is a PCA pump, so that the patient can control the amount of medication they get by themselves. Hydration is also very important in patients with sickle cell disease. Many patients have underlying cardiac and renal impairment, so we pay close attention to fluid resuscitation, and our goal is to cause euvolemia. So we give them plenty of IV fluids to start with, but then we slow down after 24 to 48 hours. We do not want to cause overhydration. We usually resuscitate with hypotonic fluids such as D5 half-normal saline. I see. So the major points are pain control as well as hydration. So I wanted to ask another question about the hydration. What exactly is the purpose of hydration? How does it affect the sickling? Patients tend to be dehydrated somewhat because they have difficulty concentrating urine. And our goal is to decrease the concentration of sickle hemoglobin by providing hydration. Got it. So hydration not only helps dilute the sickle cells, it also helps restore euvolemia in these patients. Great. So let's turn back to you, Katie. Can you tell us a little bit more about what happened to this young man in the inpatient setting? Yes. So the patient continues to have pain after he receives three doses of morphine in the emergency department. And the decision is made with the patient to admit him to the hospital to start him on a PCA. He is started on a morphine PCA with continuous and bolus dosing. Over the next 24 hours, his pain is not well controlled and he requires increasing doses of morphine. You are called to the bedside because the patient's oxygen saturations have dropped to 85% and his respiratory rate is now 26 
you request a chest x-ray that shows an opacity in the left lower lobe. Thanks, Katie. So now I'm hearing that he has a low O2 sat, he has some tachypnea, and he has these concerning chest x-ray findings that are now making me a little bit more worried about acute chest. Dr. Chebe, can you describe what acute chest syndrome is? Yes, definitely. I also would be worried about acute chest syndrome in this patient. A new radio density on chest x-ray accompanied by a fever and or other respiratory symptoms suggest acute chest syndrome. Vaso occlusion within the pulmonary vasculature is thought to be responsible. The vaso occlusion can result from bone marrow and fat emboli released from infarcted marrow during a crisis, or the vaso occlusion can be a complication of infection, asthma, and hypoventilation due to splinting in patients who have chest pain. Okay, so then what are our next steps in terms of treatment? Acute chest syndrome is one of the definite indications for a red blood cell exchange transfusion in patients with sickle cell disease. So that must be first on our mind and it's an emergency. We decide on whether the patient needs a transfusion depending on the severity of the case. We also want to control pain frequently with the use of a patient-controlled analgesia. And then we want to give fluids for euvolemia again. So we start with 1.5 times the maintenance D5 half-normal saline for the first 24 to 48 hours. And then we monitor fluid balance, trying to avoid fluid overload. We cover with empiric antibiotics, which must include coverage for atypicals. So an example would be giving ceftriaxone and azithromycin. And then we give supplemental oxygen. Great. So I'm hearing that we may consider a red blood cell exchange transfusion. We definitely want to have some pain control. We want to give some fluids. We want to do empiric antibiotic coverage. And we also want to give supplemental oxygen if necessary. Great. Now, Katie, can you wrap up what happened to our patient in this case? Yes. So the patient is placed on supplemental oxygen. He also receives fluids at 1.5 maintenance, and he is started on ceftriaxone and azithromycin. His pain therapy is increased as well. He fortunately does not need to be transferred to the ICU and in the coming days can be weaned off the oxygen, transitioned to an oral pain regimen, and discharged from the hospital. Thank you, Katie. Now, before we wrap up, I wanted to pivot for just a second to a major challenge that patients with sickle cell face, which is that many sickle cell patients actually have a lot of trouble getting adequate pain control, even when they have known sickle cell and present to the hospital with the pain episode. I think there are a number of reasons that this might be the case. So Dr. Chebe, can you maybe explore the reasons briefly, as well as number two, explain how we as medical students, as early trainees, as providers in this big healthcare system, how can we perhaps do better? Sure. So to start with, we're dealing with a disease where patients primarily present in pain. And pain is a symptom that is not readily quantifiable by the healthcare establishment. So that's us, right? Providers. Patients present in pain and often need opioid analgesics. Now, opioids also are complicated because we have difficulties with opioids outside the hospital. Now, this is compounded by most of the patients having sickle cell disease being African-American. And so there are structural problems within the hospital and outside the hospital that lead to biases that complicate care. How do we make this better? So I think we need to be thoughtful in dealing with patients with sickle cell disease. 
remembering that we cannot quantify patient's pain, and therefore tending more to believe the patient unless we have reason not to. We can avoid using words that depersonalize the disease, like referring to patients as sicklers, referring to patients being frequent flyers, as if patients have the ability to do otherwise, and maybe using words like a pain episode rather than a pain crisis, which gives the impression of hysteria. We can also use objective language in our notes and conversations, making sure not to be judgmental when we talk with colleagues. And we can be advocates in our own care of patients and care of our colleagues. We should promote pain control, good, thoughtful care during acute crisis and for follow-up care, and provide patients with more psychosocial support. I see. Thank you for such a thoughtful answer and really for sharing some important pearls on how to provide the best patient-centered care. I think the point about language really strikes me that avoiding terms that dehumanize our patients is extremely, extremely important. So for our listeners, this is a teaser for a future episode where we're going to talk more about disparities and inequalities that exist in hematology and oncology. And specifically, we're going to talk to Dr. Achebe about the context of sickle cell research disparities as well as disparities in clinical care. Great. So final thing now, before we wrap up, Dr. Achebe, do you have any pearls you want to leave our listeners with? I would say remember to listen to the patient. And I have to say this gets more difficult in patients who you see very frequently because we tend to assume that every presentation is the same as the last. And also, it's important to listen to the patient because they do have experience with presenting to the hospital. We should listen to the patient, apply our expertise, and then decide how to manage the patient. Many a time, patients will say the same thing they've been saying for a number of days in hospital, and it takes to day four before we decide to actually try what the patient has been suggesting since day one. And then the second important thing is to remember that a sickle cell patient who presents in pain may have pain from something other than a pain crisis. I want to thank you both for inviting me and for discussing a patient with sickle cell disease on Run the List. Yes, thank you so much, Dr. Chebe, for joining both Katie and me and speaking to us about the clinical diagnosis, treatment, and management of sickle cell disease. This was really helpful for me to not only think about the clinical components of it, but also the larger context of care. And again, for our listeners, we'll have more on sickle cell in a future episode. So see you all next time on Run the List. If you like this episode and want to continue learning with us, please subscribe and consider leaving us a rating and review to let us know how we're doing. Also, be sure to check out our weekly handouts and tutorial summaries on our website and our Twitter for helpful graphics and space repetition of episode content. See you next time.